Hey, everybody. You guys can start taking a seat. Hopefully you've met everyone um, in, in this room. You guys all know each other by now. Uh, if, I see a lot of new faces here today. So uh, if, you, if I haven't met you guys, my name is Nick Sestola. I would love to meet you guys. So I am the worship director and I also run our care ministry, uh, which is fun. Uh, so we've been in a series on the Psalms, and I've absolutely loved it, um, just because the Psalms are one of my favorite books. One reason is because it's a big book for worship. Another reason is a big book for counseling. And there's just something very personal and intimate about the Psalms, which I love. Um, and speaking of personal and intimate, uh, here's a picture of me from seventh grade. So, uh, yes, I had uh, frosted blonde tips. I got a lot of my look from the lead singer of Sum 41. If we got any uh, millennials out there, that is a zero hoodie, which I'm pretty sure, if I remember correctly, is a skate company. I was never good at skateboarding, but I wanted to feel like I was, so I wore the stuff. Um, you know, I remember being that kid, and I remember sitting in the psychiatrist's office in seventh grade and watching the little orbs bounce back and forth, you know. I remember I saw those on TV, but it was the first time I ever saw that in my little life. I just remember sitting there, and I remember staring at this old white dude who looked like he was just sitting on something uncomfortable. Um, I don't know if it was just my experience in St. Louis growing up, but I just feel like most doctors I interacted with were just kind of grumpy old white men. <laughs> um, but that was kind of my experience, and I was sitting there staring at this guy, and the reason I was there, uh, sorry, I'm going to fix this. Something's going weird. It's ironic. I'm the like tech guy here, and I'm the one who always has the mic problems when I preach. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I, the reason I was there was because I went from being a straight A student to a straight D student. You know, I would sleep 13 hours a day, and I would still be exhausted. I remember it wasn't uncommon on a Saturday to wake up Saturday after 1 o'clock, even when I went to bed at 10 p.m. And it all culminated to the ultimate reason I was there is that my parents found a letter that intended that I had intention to commit suicide and intention to harm myself. You know, fast forward a handful of different years uh, to high school. We're kind of graduating high school, and a group of my friends went on a trip to this random, like, river house that a friend of ours had. And it was kind of like this big kind of let's just celebrate the last four years and say goodbye. And I remember sitting there in this intimate moment where people were crying and feel all these emotions of joy and sadness. And, and I just remember feeling so unbelievably numb. And that was kind of characteristic of that entire season, starting my junior year of high school, really well into college. And I didn't know what to do with that. And ironically, from feeling numb, from not being able to feel sad, I felt unbelievably sad. Fast forward a handful of more years, I was halfway through seminary. I went to seminary to study counseling, uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, and I remember staring at the mirror, so unbelievably stressed because I didn't want to go to that work that day because I was working some part-time job in grad school where I got physically attacked multiple times a day at a social services job. My wife and I, we just had our second miscarriage. Um, I remember staring down, looking into my eyes as I, in that season of struggle, facing temptation and struggling with sin, I thought I passed and just being wrecked with guilt in that season, not knowing what to do. Which raises the question, what the heck do you do when you're in that spot? And I don't mean, what do you, how do you talk to somebody who is in that spot? I mean, what do you personally do? How do you talk to someone who's there in that spot of deep sadness, in that spot of depression, I mean, more importantly, what does God have to say when we're in that spot? Did he leave us alone? Um, and obviously, I'm, I'm preaching on depression and sadness today, if you haven't figured that out yet. And I strongly believe he has not left us alone without nothing. 
And in fact, the Bible and God actually has a lot to say on this topic. Um, there's a lot of different angles, a lot of different things he has to say from different places. Um, but what we're going to do today is we're actually going to sit and look at a depressed man who lived 3,000 years ago who wrote a poem. And there's this depressed man, his name is Asaph, which we'll talk about in a second. And he wrote this poem about his experience. And somehow, even though that is his, in his own language, talking about his own events, talking about his own experience, it is somehow still God's word, God's breathe, and is written down for our benefit here today, even 3,000 years later. And so I know when we come to topics like this, like this is a heavy topic, right? <laughs> I didn't start off. Uh, I guess I started off with that embarrassing picture of me. Um, but, uh, you know, I think when we come to this topic, we have a lot of questions, we have a lot of agendas. And I've found in my own experience and also counseling many people at this point uh, that sometimes we come with so many agendas, we don't even actually hear what God has to say to us. So I just want to ask you guys to lay down even and let Jesus even form the questions in which you have um, this morning. And so to do that, we need God's help. We need his Holy Spirit to come and meet us. We need his, we need his Holy Spirit to help let us understand his word and apply it to our lives and respond in worship. So to do that, let me pray for us, and then we'll get into the text. Um, Father God, I just uh, want to pray for this morning. God, I pray that you would speak to us. Um, Lord, I pray uh, that you would give us clarity on where you are in these really dark moments of sadness and depression. God, I thank you that you spoke to us and you did not stay silent on the subject. Lord, I want to pray for those who are in that spot right now. Uh, God, I pray you bring peace and comfort and not from anything else but beside, but, but from your personal presence speaking to them uh, this morning. Um, we pray this in your holy name. Amen. Uh, if you guys have Bibles, uh, open up to Psalm 77. Uh, we'll also follow along on the screen. You can follow along on the screen here. Uh, I will be preaching out of the ESV this morning. Um, and so just a little background on Psalm 77. So Psalm's the biggest book in the Old Testament, so feel free to go generally to the left and somewhere in the middle of the left, you'll probably find it. Um, so the Psalms are poems that were written with the intention to be sung corporately. So they're songs. So a lot of the songs we do in worship actually are psalms and based on psalms. So it's a poem with the intention of being sung. Um, and this one is written by a guy named Asaph. So Asaph was alive during the time of David. Uh, he was actually, so which was roughly around 1,000-ish B.C., depending on which scholar you talk to. Um, live during the time of David, he was the Levitical priest who was in charge of singing. So he was like David's worship leader. So he was the guy at the temple that they would sing songs. Ironically, they'd sing, sing a lot of these psalms, and he'd be the guy that led it. He probably had a beautiful voice, um, and, uh, which is cool. Uh, you know, Asaph, for some reason, Asaph is a writer that I deeply connect with. Uh, maybe it's because he's kind of like a 3,000-year-old dashboard confessional. Uh, any emo kids? Uh, so he's like the original emo band, and I love that. Uh, I don't know if you guys ever had like writers, either in literature, that you just feel like you connect with, or, in, or scripture, you know, where you just feel like they just kind of get it. They think like I think. Um, he's one of those guys for me. Um, and as we go through this text, I want you guys to think about really three questions. Um, I want you to think about what is he experiencing? Why is he experiencing it? And what does he do about it? So what is he experiencing? Why is he experiencing it? And what does he do about it? Um, and out of those three questions, we're going to draw some principles um, from this text. So let's get in. Psalm 77, starting in verse 1. He says this. He says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. 
In the day of trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. Uh, just a side note on Selah that just kind of marks, most scholars think it just marks literary structure. So that's like the end of a section. Um, but did you see the tension in that? There's a contradiction there. I want you guys to see it. He says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. He says, I cry aloud to God. I know he will hear me. You know, if we're putting on our, our Christian Sunday school hats, we're like, yes, cry aloud to God. We know he hears me. Theology of prayer. And then he says, but my hands are stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. AKA, I pray because I know he hears me, but it's not helping and it feels like part of the problem. Have you guys ever felt that? That tension? Where you're like, God, I know you hear me, but God, this is hard. And it almost even feels like when I remember you, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Have you ever felt that way? That's how he feels. He continues. He says, you hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. Um, have you guys ever had those nights where you're absolutely terrified to lay your head, head down at night because you know you're going to be alone with your thoughts? And you're just terrified of what's going to happen when you sit there and you know you just want to sleep and all you're doing is just running and running and running and you're just in that dark spiral to wee hours of the night. For me, those are some of the darkest moments I've ever had. Uh, that's Asaph. Um, you know, I think, I think it's not a coincidence that most people I've counseled, even most people I've counseled at this church have sleep issues, right? I mean, there's been enough mental health science to know that depression and insomnia are usually linked. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I think it's funny because I know when I'm really sad, usually being sleepless doesn't help. <laughs> um, been my experience. But Asaph, you know, I think something also that's interesting is he doesn't say my eyelids are just open and I'm so troubled that I can't speak. He says, you hold my eyelids open. That he feels like the cause of why he's here is because of God. Um, you know, it's not just, it's not even that he can't sleep and is praying to God and it's not working. It's that he can't sleep and talking to God is a driving force. You ever felt that way? This is church, right? Are you allowed to say that in church? He did. This is the Bible. Remember? <laughs> Inspired word of God. He continues. He says, I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. You know, I, I think something that's so weird about it's so interesting about being sad is how much we just think about the past. Um, one of my favorite movies, which there might be raunchy stuff and I haven't seen it in a while. I don't know if I recommend it, but uh, <laughs> it's a great art piece. Let's just skip some scenes. Google it first. Um, it's called The Squid and the Whale. And it's a really, honestly, it's one of the most accurate depictions of divorce that I've seen, at least me being a white kid from the suburbs. Um, and the end scene, and so it's a family of a mother of 
you know, a husband and wife and two sons. And the end scene is an, the oldest son sitting in this aquarium, and in the, out of the sky, or out of the ceiling, sky, out of the ceiling is hanging this big fish, uh, a big whale and a big squid. And as you know, it's one of the big, it's one of the parts of the aquarium. And he's sitting there at the end of this movie just reminiscing about the good old days when he would go back with his mom and, and he would go in and see the wonder of these animals and everything just felt right when he felt like he had a loving, comforting relationship with his mom, uh, when things felt innocent. And he's just sitting there after all this tragedy just happened and everyone just kind of went crazy. He's just sitting there just remembering these old days. How often do we do that? You know, uh, you know, so often when we're sad, we fantasize about past seasons, previous relationships, whether it be friends, romantic, or family. The good old days, right? There's a reason why that's a phrase. Uh, back when God felt so close. Maybe you've been a Christian for a while and you just envy those moments when you first became a Christian and grace just, just felt so just strong. Um, back when faith was simple and life was good. You know, maybe you just moved to Denver, uh, which I feel like that's like most people in Denver. Uh, maybe you just moved to Denver and it's been so hard and lonely and you just remember the days back when you had friends back in college when people actually hung out all the time and you didn't feel lonely. Um, Maybe you just went through some tragedy and you can't help and think about what could have been. Man, maybe if I did this, what if I did that back then? What and fantasize about that life that could have been? Or man, what if I I see that person again and I can can say this and then, um, you know, maybe you're just struggling with God and you miss the days when you just trusted him without the doubt, without the angst. It's Asaph. And he doesn't even stop there. I think I lost my... There we go. He says, Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever, never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in his anger shut up his compassion? He puts his brain to it. He examines himself. He gets introspective. He, spirit, makes a diligent search. And what does it rage? He says, will God spurn forever? A.K.A. will this ever end? Will he never again be favorable? A.K.A. is he against me now? Has his steadfast love ceased? Was his care for me conditional all along? Are his promises done? Did he lie? Has he forgotten to be gracious? Is he indifferent? Has he in his anger shut up his compassion? Am I on the receiving end of his justice or his love? Have you ever asked those questions? In the still night, when things are just dark? Um, Have you ever struggled with who God really is and how he really is towards you? Even if he exists? Um, Asaph did. Um, And he showed us his experience in this God-breathed poem. So which raises the question, uh, what is he experiencing? Short answer is a deep sadness. We see numbness, we see confusion, we see doubt, we see a lack of comfort, we see insomnia. We see existential crisis. Um, We just see 
just a view that just everything kind of sucks. Um, this tells me a couple things. You know, why do these nine verses exist in Scripture? And we're not done. There's, there's more verses. If you guys have your Bibles open, you see that. Um, but why do these nine verses exist? It tells me a couple things. God is not shocked that you're in this, when you're in that spot. And struggling is normal. Um, you're not the first one to experience these things. That's important. Uh, you know, I think one thing I've been so strongly convinced of after being involved with the church and being involved in some hard situations and then counseling a bunch of people, everybody's going through something, uh, whether light or small, and everyone's struggling with something dark behind closed doors. That's a piece of being human. I'm not just talking about people who don't know Jesus. I'm talking about the entire spectrum. And God actually isn't shocked by this, which means that we don't have to be. Um, you know, I think there's just this weird, you know, I think our culture has gotten better about this, um, generally speaking, but there's just this weird thing of like, if you're really struggling, you got to keep that to yourself. That, that you are, you're the one person in the room who's really, who's really hurting. Or you're the one person in this room who's really going through this. Or, uh, you know, if people really saw the darkness of your sin, you, would, you just would stand out all alone because you're worse than all the rest. I think one thing I realized is everyone feels that way. <laughs> I've felt that way. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's interesting. God's not thrown for a loop when we're in that spot. Um, you know, he's not thrown for a loop. Otherwise, he wouldn't write these verses. Uh, this is supposed to give us comfort that we're not the only ones. Another thing is it tells me that God actually wants to meet us in that place. It's not even that he's just not shocked and that this is normative, but that means that this place is not outside of the realm of God's grace. I'll give you a hint. Asaph doesn't say, screw God, I'm out, done. And God's like, all right, you're done, moving on. That's not what happens. I'm like, don't look ahead. Don't look ahead. Um, but that means, that means genuinely when we're in that dark spot, God wants to meet us here. And I think, ironically, usually when we're in that spot, we feel like we're the exception. We feel like God is so close and he doesn't really get to speak into this. We so easily compartmentalize God to think that this is outside of the realm of his grace that, man, if I really am honest about this doubt, that he just, oh, this is too much. No. Scripture doesn't say that. Um, you know, I, I think something's interesting too is notice how these first nine verses that God was like the center of the problem, right? Like he was surrounded of it. Like he always viewed his problem and God was a piece of that lens. You know, I've counseled so many people uh, that are going through some really hard stuff and God's not even a piece of it. God's like an afterthought. And you know, if you believe God is all-knowing, all-powerful, present in all places, and sovereign over all things, yet he has nothing to do with your problem, then it's no wonder we have a hard time reading our scripture. Just because our theology of who God is and how he interacts with us, with this world, and our problem are so utterly separated that he's just this, like, neutered side thought. Um, no wonder we struggle with faith. And I think it's interesting is Asaph's not afraid to even say, like, God, if you are this way, why am I struggling? 
Um, we so easily compartmentalize God from, from real moments. Just think about it. This God-breathed scripture is a poem of a broken, depressed man about sadness and doubt, and how his prayer is burdensome. And God decided to write this for our benefit. Last thing on this point is we can be honest. Remember verses one through three, where he's like, God, I know, like, God, I know you hear me. I come to you in times of trouble. Lord, I know you hear prayers. But God, when I meditate, I moan. There is simultaneously a reverence, yet a brutal honesty. You know, I, there's so many examples of this in scripture. Uh, if I've talked to you guys more than probably for 10 minutes, you've probably heard me talk about the book of Habakkuk, um, which is one of my favorite books. And he has this line when he's struggling with God through this massive problem of evil situation. Uh, and he essentially says to God, he says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? He says, Are you not from everlasting? God, where the heck are you? Oh, Lord, my God, my Holy One. And he's not saying that flippantly. He means that. God, I know you're holy. God, I know you're my Lord. God, I know you are in charge of all things. God, are you not from everlasting? How does that work with what's going on? I don't see that equation. Um, you know, I think honesty is insufficient and not the end goal, but it's a crucial first step. Uh, some of you guys, some of us are afraid to be honest with God. We're afraid to ask those real questions, even though that's where we're at right now. And you know, the reality is, is God's big enough for it. Uh, the New Testament actually puts it this way. He says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. First um, Peter 5, 7. Um, he's big enough for it. Some of you guys have been afraid to come to God honestly because you're afraid of what you're going to say or what you're going to do or you're afraid of what he's going to do in response or what's going to happen if you're be honest. That's not from God. Uh, some of us come to God irreverently um, as, if, as if we created him, not he created us. He is infinite, we are finite. He is all-knowing. Many of us got straight C's our first semester of college. Amen? Uh, you know? Uh, yeah, <laughs> like the latent chuckle. Um, you know, and, and we come to conclusions not saying, God, are you not from everlasting? We say, God, you are not from everlasting. God, you have uh, forgotten to be gracious. God, you did lie about your promises. No. Asaph comes openly. He comes honestly, but he comes reverently. You know, to quote Ecclesiastes, a fool's mouth has many words, but a dream comes with much business. Uh, for he is on heaven and we are on earth. Um, and some of us don't even, when our, we're in our struggle, we don't even, God's not even a part of the equation. You know, maybe you don't know God. Maybe you're not in a relationship, covenant relationship with Jesus. Um, you know, maybe you came from, uh, grew up in Christianity and it's just kind of a cultural affirmation opposed to a deep covenant relationship. Um, you know, if the main reason we exist is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, if that's the main narrative of humanity, the world period is him, uh, then we can't just make him a side thought. So, so God is not shocked, struggling is normal. God wants to meet us in that place. And it means we can be honest. So, and honest, you can be honest. Uh, and uh, I've met people that are honest <laughs> as heck, and it doesn't fix the problems. <laughs> However, you can't, you can't really work through things with God until you're honest.
So it's necessary but insufficient. Which brings the next question. Why is he experiencing this? Think about it. Do we get any clues? Verses 1 through 9? The only ones I got is he says he's in the day of trouble. I mean, he says he feels outside of God's favor. You know, for an old covenant Israelite, that probably means he's going through some sort of suffering. Um, Maybe struggling with sin, but we really don't know. We have no idea. (laughs) He doesn't say like, hey, this person's attacking me, like some of the other Psalms do. Hey, this person's about to kill me. God, where are you? Or hey, I just slept with somebody that wasn't my wife and killed her husband. God, I'm sorry. You know, that's not what he says. Uh, that's Psalm 51, which I preached on a couple weeks ago, just for the record. Uh, you know, yeah, just a light. <laughs> just a light comment. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm glad he doesn't give us surrounding circumstances. Because that means that if you relate to anything from verses 1 through 9, this is for you. You know, I think even the stories I gave previous in life, the circumstances surrounding each one of those moments was so radically different. Some of those were pre-meeting Jesus, some of those were post So whatever he does next is for us just in any place of sadness. So what does he do next? He says, then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. He doesn't look in He looks up. Uh, sounds like a very simple thing to say in a church, right? Look up, not in. Um, but that is radical. Think of the literary contrast here, if I can rewind, you know, to the, my spirit made a diligent search that we see, I think, in verse six. And then he says, then I said, I will appeal to this to the years of the right hand of the most high. That he was introspective at a point, but that was not the end answer. Um, you know, I, I think this is so radically different from what we do because there's a belief in our culture, there's a belief amongst a bunch of counselors, sometimes even Christian, that if we just truly understand ourselves, that if I could just see every nook and cavern, if I, could, if I just truly understood myself and knew my Enneagram and knew my Myers-Briggs, and, uh, then, then my problems would just go away. And maybe I can get an expert to come and help me see those things. Um, or if I just truly understood the people around me, then all problems would go away, and vice versa. You know, that's the moral of a lot of movies nowadays. It's the air we breathe. Um, but when the wisdom of self-introspection becomes the ultimate goal and hope, it will always result in self-centeredness and selfishness. And if our fundamental problem is something beyond ourselves, then looking in ourselves for that ultimate problem to fix that ultimate problem is like putting a Band-Aid on cancer. It might make you feel better, but it doesn't change the fact that you have cancer. Um, And so, you know, Asaph didn't just search harder. His spirit just didn't make a more diligent search. Uh, He ultimately sat at the feet of Jesus, or he didn't, anyways, talk about that. Uh, He essentially sat at the feet of God and looked at the years of the right hand of Most High what does he say? He says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I'll remember your wonders of old. 
I ponder all your work and meditate in your mighty deeds. As he essentially says, he sits and he says, God, speak to me about who you are. He continues. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the son of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. Notice the tenses there. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who has worked wonders. How can he honestly say that? Three verses previously, he's like, God, are you not from everlasting? Do you see me in my struggle? God, are you even present in these things? Have you, have, you, have, you, have you forgotten to be gracious and shut up at your compassion? He said that three verses earlier. How can he honestly say your way, O God, is holy? O God is great like our God. Um, it's because of this. Because yeah, It says present tense. But he says past tense here. He says you have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm have redeemed, E-D, your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. He looks backward to historic action for present hope. Where is God in your struggle? Uh, you look backwards. And he doesn't just stay general. He's going to get very specific. Um, he doesn't say, it's not just, God, you are holy. I don't believe any of this, but God, you're holy. You know, I think of it like, I don't know, have you ever been really struggling and someone just says, hey, God is good. A.K.A. it feels like, hey, get over it, you know? Um, it doesn't really help, you know, just say, hey, I'm really struggling. God, where are you? I have all these massive questions. I don't see how you can be good and all these things going on in my life. Um, but your way is holy. No, he goes back and essentially says, God, I'm going to look back on who you have been to figure out who you are now. Um, you know, your, your present feeling does not control the reality of who God was in the past, who he is in the present, who he will be in the future. We need to let the all-knowing God actually remind us in that moment of who he is. And we're actually gonna, he's gonna go back and remember a very specific moment. So uh, I have no idea, I've, a lot of you guys I haven't met, some of you guys, a lot of you guys I know. Um, but I want you to put on your Bible Old Testament hats uh, your, if you grew up in the church, your Sunday school hats. And I want you to think about, because he's going to describe a very specific event. I want you to think about what is he talking about and why is he talking about it as you read this next passage, this, this last chunk of the, of the passage. He says, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings, lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through great waters. Your footprint were unseen. Prince, I think a typo. You led your people like a flock by the hands of Moses and Aaron. What is he talking about? So we see waters, lightning, earth's trembling, the sky gave forth thunder. We see this cataclysmic, poetic description of a very intense event. And he says, your way was through the sea. 
Something passed through the sea, the path through great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hands of Moses and Aaron. He's talking about the splitting of the Red Sea in the Exodus. The time when God's people were being chased down by the Egyptian, their former Egyptian slave owners, and they were fleeing them at the threat of death. And God somehow, somehow in his all-powerful sovereignty, split the waters so his people could come through and pass through that water and be freed from slavery. And the waters came and crashed in and took out all the Egyptians that were following him. You know, this is actually the, the clearest picture of salvation in the Old Testament. That you want to know, how does God treat his people? If, you're an old, if you are pre-Jesus, it's, it's, you go back and you look at the Exodus. And so Asaph is essentially saying, God, when you, you essentially, you cared for your people so much that you somehow split waters, you somehow so tenderly shepherded them through that, even though your footprints were unseen. Isn't that poetry beautiful? Of the power of God for to save his people, to tenderly take care of his people, yet invisibly. Poetry's, and I, I don't know, I, I don't agree. Prince of Egypt isn't necessarily completely historically accurate, you know, um, and biblically accurate, and, but the Mariah Carey, Mariah Carey song's great, you know, even if I disagree with parts of it. Um, the, but that, I love how they capture that. There's just like, a, I don't know if you remember, and these, like, there's lightning flashing, and then they see this like whale, you know. And, uh, but there's just something so cataclysmic, but yet so gentle. And Asaph goes back and remembers, which most likely was between two and 300 years before his time. He goes back and remembers, God, that's who you were then. How can I not think that you're that way now? When he says your way is holy, he's not just saying that of like, hey, God is good. No, he goes back and he's like, God, you were that way then. You so proved it. God, you saved my ancestors from death, from slavery. How the heck can I not think that about you now? Um... He looks back for historic action for present hope. How much more do we have to look back to post-Jesus? You know, the book of Ezekiel, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Isaiah actually talk that God is going to bring, which all were hundreds of years before Jesus lived, that God is going to bring back a new exodus. And not where he's just going to bring his people out of physical slavery, but he's going to bring them out of slavery from their sins. And we don't see um, a bunch of Israelites who wiped blood on the, on the doorposts so that their firstborns wouldn't die, but we see the firstborn, God incarnate Jesus, hanging on a cross and dying so that that justice we deserved was taken in our place. You know, the Bible says, how do we know that God loves us? Is that he died for us, and Christ died for us when we were yet sinners. He didn't do that because we're good enough. He did that because he did it. You know, uh, we don't see just a God who guided Israel through the sea. We see a God who gives his Holy Spirit so freely to people who have faith in him and enter into covenant relationship with him. That that spirit daily guides, daily convicts, daily comforts. It prays for us when we don't know how to. It somehow gives us an existential experience of experiencing God's love, even in those moments when it's really hard to feel it. I didn't feel it in the moment, but I can see it historically. And scripture tells me. So when we think, when we're in that place, when we are struggling with sin and we're depressed about it, when we're terrified if people saw who we are, we actually look back and see Jesus who actually paid for that and took the justice and there's no condemnation. 
And that's what we remember in that deep moment. When we go through suffering, we remember that the God who created all things, who was perfect, who didn't have to experience anything bad, actually stepped into creation and experienced the most suffering that any human being ever would suffer. So is he indifferent? Oh my gosh, no. If there's one person that cannot be accused with indifference, it's Jesus. You know, if I could just preach to, I, some, there's just a handful of people in our church that I've met, and even outside of our church in this past year, that their spouses are leaving them for crappy reasons. And it sucks. And I just want to remind you that Jesus came and was rejected by the people who should have accepted him to the point of death so that we who rejected him can be accepted by him. And so if God indifferent in that struggle or not present in that struggle, oh my gosh, is he. The all-sovereign, all-knowing, all-present God is present. You know, maybe, I have, I have no idea if you're struggling, why you're struggling. Um, but the gospel speaks to every single bit of it in some way or another. And if you want to look back to where, um, you know, who God is in this present moment, go back and look at the cross. It puts everything in perspective. That's, that's what Asaph would have done if he lived today. Um, and that's what he did looking back at the Exodus and how much more do we have? He got comfort in that moment. How much more comfort do we have at this moment? Um, notice how we don't see his response after remembering. He doesn't say, you way, oh God is holy. Here's a picture of the Exodus. Everything's great. Happy clappy, you know? All my problems are done. Let's go dance, you know? Uh, never sad again. Uh, that's, we don't see that. And just like I'm thankful that we don't see why he's struggling, I'm thankful that we don't see that. Because it tells me something very specific. It tells me that this remembering, this faith and struggle isn't the silver bullet that cures our depression. It's actually the end goal. Um, I think actually Paul puts it this way. Oh, here we go. The ultimate goal is dependence. Not getting out of depression even though that might be a byproduct. Paul says it this way. So Paul, so think first century apostle, founder of the early church. Uh, so he has experienced a ton of persecution. This guy's been whipped to the borderline of death multiple times. He's been stoned and people thought he were dead, but was alive multiple times, shipwrecked, went through a bunch of stuff. And one of these experiences, he says this. He says, so we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sense of death, but that was to make us, rely on our, make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. It's not introspection. We just need to accept ourselves better, but he's like, I'm so thankful for this moment because that wasn't so I would rely on myself, it's so I rely on God. He goes on even to say, he delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. See that language? goes back to historic action to future hope and present hope. On him we have set our hope <laughs> that he will deliver us again. Um, you know, faith and sadness is a way more beautiful and complex thing than we like to make it. I can't tell you how many times I've sat in counseling rooms and even with a handful of you guys in this room and just seeing just the crisis, the struggle, the deep sadness, and just seeing the taste of the gospel and the joy of that amidst that, and just, 
and uh, just giving claps, hollers, high fives, because that is a beautiful thing. Um, you know, so my wife and I, we actually just had our fourth miscarriage a handful of weeks ago. Um, and uh, a lot of people have, and, which has been great, and you guys have been great in taking care of us. This isn't a sermon on taking care of people in depression, uh, but you guys did a great job. Uh, so I didn't need to preach that sermon. Um, but, uh, you know, I think people have asked us how we're doing. I think one of the weirdest things to say, and I, I don't know how to describe it beyond this, is that everything sucks, yet we're somehow okay. You know, I wish I wasn't good at this. You know, I actually just sharing this with uh, one of the acoustic players before the class. Actually, I'm working on a song right now. Uh, we'll see if it actually finishes, but it starts this. It, Why did life just end? Before one breath silent, I know what I know, and yet my child died, excuse my language, but too damn quiet. I never wanted to be so good at this facing death. I never wanted to be here again. Um, it sucks that we're here. It's sad, and it should be sad and sucks because something horrible happened. However, am I okay? Oh my gosh, yes. I'm in the hands of an ultimately good, infinite God who died for me, loved for me, and dwelt his spirit, comforted me, gave me a group of people that have to hang out with me. Amen. 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 And while everything sucks and simultaneously this shouldn't have happened and God hates it and God weeps, simultaneously he somehow in his sovereignty is doing good in this. Dependence isn't, isn't like the silver bullet to get happiness. No, dependence is the goal. If you are happy and never struggle and you are so full that you say, you you say who is God? That is a way worse place to be on your knees and being just wrecked every single day and having Jesus right there holding your hand. This is a way better place to live. And one day, Jesus is actually going to come back, wipe away every tear, recreate all this crap that happens, all this sin that happens, all this death, all these things that are wrong with our biology, all these things that are wrong with our society. Will be, justice will be upheld, and he will take all those things away in goodness. There's an end date to all of it. So, oh my gosh, am I okay? Yes. I can't be anything but. That's just a static reality. Just the question is whether I know that or not, and whether I taste it. But if I'm in Jesus, that's who I am. Couldn't change it even if I wanted to. You know, some of you guys have been struggling and God's nowhere on your radar. Maybe you don't know him, maybe you do. Uh, and my challenge for you this week is you just need to take some time. You need to go walk in the woods of beautiful Colorado and you just need to get on your knees and sit at the feet of Jesus and ask him to speak. If you need some passages to sit in, come talk to me. I got a billion. So some of you guys have been terrified about the doubt terrified about if you're honest with God and you're not willing to go there as if God can't handle it. God wants, God wants to meet you. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So my challenge for you is to take a moment, sit at the feet of Jesus and just be honest with him. He knows it all anyways. If he knows it all and he wants you to talk to him, that means because he wants you to feel his, his care for you. Uh, some of you guys have come to God in your struggle, but on your terms, not his. You say, you are not from everlasting versus are you from everlasting? As if you created him, not he created you. I just want to challenge you to be humbled. Come to him. If he is real, he actually is who he says he is, then 
And that means it's the most important thing you could do. If he's not real, then this is placebo at best, and who cares? But if he actually is who he says he is, there's nothing more important. Um, all of us, however, uh, actually, some of us, after doing those steps, you need to talk to somebody. Um, if you guys are involved in this church, you guys, we run on community groups, people that hang out. I just want to encourage you, if you're in a community group and you need to talk to somebody and you're terrified, just take that step and ask someone. If they're a butt towards you, that's on them and Jesus will get them. So, uh, so then try it again. <laughs> so, uh, and so you open up. Uh, we have things called LTGs where people meet and talk real with each other. Um, uh, I also, we offer free counseling for members. So I have my master's in counseling and do that. I've never announced that from the stage, but if you're in a rough spot and you're a member of this church, I would love to meet with you and talk with you. Um, we also have some people who've received some, some counseling training and would love to just get coffee and talk, even if it's not a formal counseling thing, but just talk. So, um, and while some of us need to take that step, all of us need to remember. Just like Asaph remembered the Exodus, we all need to remember Jesus hanging on the cross. You know, I think what's the funny thing is, is that's communion. So Jesus sat on the night of Passover, which was an Israel feast where they'd celebrate when God saved his people out of, out of the Exodus, you know, Red Sea, all the same event. He, Jesus sat there and broke his bread, and he says, this is my body, a.k.a. this thing that you looked back towards, the salvation of how God saved his people, that actually was pointing to me. This bread you eat isn't celebrating the unleavened tradition that came out of that, but no, it's actually celebrating my body broken. And this wine, and it's an elementary school, so we've got to have grape juice. Grape juice, you know, uh, is actually my blood that was shed for you. And that actually, as we eat this, as we taste these things, that we actually experience and taste his love. It's exactly what Asaph did. He remembered. God, do you love me? And we come and you feast and remember, God, you broke your body for me. So uh, if, you're in, if you call Jesus Lord and Savior, we invite you to come and take this uh, during the next couple of songs. Um, if, you, if, you, if, Jesus, if you're not in relationship with Jesus, if he isn't the number one, if he isn't your Lord and your Savior, we ask that you would refrain. But I do want to challenge you that you can taste that at this very moment. Christ died for us while we're still yet sinners. And we're saved by grace through faith. It's not your own doing, it's the gift of God. So you can taste that this very moment if you want. I'd ask if that's you, come take communion and please come talk to us afterwards because we'd love to walk with you further. Um, let me pray for us. Uh, God, anything that I said was of you, right on our hearts, anything that was not, Lord, let, help us just leave it behind because who cares about it? Uh, God, I just want to pray for those who are really in dark, suffering places. Lord, I just want to pray for comfort this week. Lord, I pray that your word actually met them and your spirit gave specific conviction. And Lord, I pray just even that experience of feeling you talk would just bring peace. Uh, Lord, I pray, yeah, Lord, I just want to weep for all the hard situations going on, all the hard situations that are going to happen. Um, yeah, God, give us wisdom as a church how to take care of each other in those situations and, and most importantly, rely on you. Um, we pray this in your holy name. Amen.